Well, good morning, church. It's, hey, Cassie. It's, uh, it's good to be here again and into the Word. If you were here last week, you'll, you'll know that I um, put out a bit of a, an invitation. As we're in this series exploring intimacy with God, put out this invitation for you to read two Psalms with me. Uh, two Psalms each day. Not being legalistic about it. If you've missed one, no stress. But um, I just wondered, how have people gone with that? Those who have jumped on board, how, how have people gone? Has there been um, any reflections on the experience, really, is, is what I'm asking. Anyone want to chuck something out there? Yes, Karen. It's been great. Yes. I've been reading 10 during the week. Okay. So you're an overachiever, reading 10. Yes, yes. But thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> But you've been finding it... Sorry, what did you say? I don't know now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying it and um, I, I just love it when you come across different parts that have been um, Finding joy, absolutely beautiful. Thanks, Karen. A- any other re- reflections, things that resonated, difficulty you had, anything like that? Yeah, Sam. I was actually an underachiever. <laughs> um, I, I only managed to do um, a couple of days in the two Okay. Fair enough. But if you are reading two Psalms three times, you're at about six, so you, you that, that's right. So. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very good. No, very good. Any other delighting in, in God's... Gail, oh, no, hold on, we'll go... Georgia, Yes. Yes. I've, so uh, if you didn't hear, they're doing it as a family and they're decorating. I've seen uh, on Facebook their, their growing scrapbook of psalms that they're all getting around and, and adding art to. and Lovely. Gail, we'll go with you. Reflections from you and then we'll, we'll move on. Three a day. Yep. Opening the windows of heaven and pouring out his spirit. Beautiful. Lovely. Very good. Well, for, for me, um, for me, one of the things that has stood out is just the fullness of the experience that's reflected in, in the Psalms. Like, one of the Psalms starts with, Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? But then the very next psalm starts, In the Lord I take refuge. And it seems almost contradictory. He's so far away and yet here I am hiding in closeness with him. But it's not contradictory. It's just the, the different experiences of life and of God and that are then expressed without 
throughout the Psalms in the honesty and the realness of all of that human experience. And so I've really been enjoying that so far. Um, I hadn't planned ahead that we would do this whole thing of, for those who are on board, you know, doing two Psalms a, a day. There was an idea um, that came to me at like 1.30 in the morning, last Sunday morning. So not a lot of forethought went into it particularly. Uh, but what it meant then is that while I've been reading my two Psalms, I've also still been reading what I had already you know, started being reading, which happened to be Second Samuel, which is about um, King David. And so it's been really interesting to have these two things marry up where, where I'm reading the Psalms, many of which are written by David, as well as then reading about his life and, and seeing his character and his devotion to God coming through in that. Now, if we know David's story, we know that he takes an absolute moral nosedive with Bathsheba. But even that is then captured in his songs in the Psalms, and we'll come to that psalm um, at some point within this series. But I want to encourage you, those who have started, those who haven't started, uh, to keep on with your Psalms reading. You know, just, just jump in. We're aiming for two a day. If that works for you, you could go for ten, you could go for one, whatever. Um, but just to read some Psalms each day as you're able while we're in this series looking at cultivating a life-giving intimacy with God through our delighting in God's Word and to do that together. So last week I opened up this series by talking about how if we really want intimacy with God, then we need to both relate to God as He is, as He's revealed Himself to be, and not some you know, distorted, skewed, or just false perception of Him that we have. We need to relate to God as He is, and we need to relate to Him as, as we are. Uh, in all the mess and the glory of that, to not try to present to him you know, this mask of respectability and of hiding behind a fig leaf, but bringing all of our real selves before God. And it's in this context that, that we're looking at the Psalms because they are the honest and real, the beautiful and sometimes ugly cries of God's people to their God. And so as, as David noted, we are jumping well ahead uh, in the book today, we are jumping to, to uh, Psalm 95. This is not an indication of how fast we're moving through this series. We're going to jump backwards again next week. After Easter, we'll end up being roughly sequential, but until then, we're, we're moving around a bit. But today, we are at Psalm 95. And this is a psalm for corporate worship. It's about how we collectively, as God's people, relate to Him. So if you've still got it open there, let's, let's dive in and look at it again. It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. It opens with a call to worship to the gathered congregation of God's people, like what we have here. Come, let us sing. Let us shout. Let us come before him. It's inviting us into God's presence with music and song of thanksgiving and of praise. And let me comment just for a moment about how this psalm speaks to our worship uh, as, a, as a church. I know, for instance, that, that some people deliberately, can you believe it, arrive late to church because their thing is, well, all I'm going to miss is the singing anyway, so that's okay. I know, too, that some people, you know, and again, this is also shocking, don't like the songs that we do here. Uh, and so then you, you don't sing or, or you only kind of mumble half-heartedly through it. I also know that, that God doesn't need our music. You know, it was great to have a full band 
again this morning. Awesome to have drums. I love a good drummer. And so, you know, like it was awesome to have all that, but God doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need our music, our singing, our volume to know what's on our hearts and what we feel towards him. But then this psalm actively, strongly encourages us collectively, corporately to sing. And not just to sing, but to shout. There should be volume and body to our worship. We extol him with music and song because by it we express our joy, our thanksgiving, our trust, our affection. There's a sense of, of abandon almost in these opening words. You know, like David when he danced before the Ark of the Covenant as it returned into Jerusalem. I mean, he probably looked ridiculous, and his wife certainly thought so. But, but he just had to move and sing and to be undignified because God and the occasion just warranted it. So I talked last week about the, the risk or, or the danger of us having a polite relationship with God, where we hold back from him the hard and the messy stuff of our lives. And we just you know, engage at a nice level. But we can also have a polite relationship with God when we hold back our exuberance and our joy. This psalm invites us, when we gather as God's people, to, to let it all out. Let, let out the shout of praise. Let out our thanksgiving and our praises and let them take song and to overflow from us in that way. Let me, let me quote then a commentator that I read on this because it's, um, it's an idea that will come up again later in the Psalms and, and he, says it, he says it well. He says, It is not enough for our worship of Yahweh, our worship of God, to be just a heart attitude. One reason is that worship has to glorify God publicly, which is then what we do when we're together in this way. But another reason is that we are physical beings with voices. So heart praise is not praise by the whole person. So as we're talking about intimacy with God, if, if we're talking about bringing our whole selves before him, you know, naked and unashamed as Adam and Eve were with each other and before God in the Garden of Eden. If we're bringing our whole self before God, then that means more than just having a nice warm feeling for him in our heart. It means more than just focusing our mind's attention on him. It requires a physical embodied action. I don't love my wife, my, my kids, my friends just by having fond thoughts of them. I tell them repeatedly, out loud, with my words, with my voice. And so why would we be any different with God? If we want to bring our whole real self before God, then that includes our, our physical bodies. And specifically here, it includes our voices, our out-of-tune, raspy, you know, nails-down-a-chalkboard kind of voices, as well as our powerful, rich beautiful voices. They all need to come before God. So I want to say, church, sing. You're not auditioning for the voice or Australian Idol. And God gave you the voice that you have. So he delights to hear it, whatever it sounds like, and however much your neighbor may not delight to hear it. But so let us sing. And the psalmist gives us the reason why, why we sing, why we shout, why we embody our worship in this way. He says, for the Lord is the great God, 
the great king above all gods. And in his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Here's why we're called to sing and shout with music and song. For who our God is. That he's the great God. That he's the king above all other gods. He's the, the, the creator and the sustainer of the earth. He is the one who is above anything and, and everything. Anything else is just fundamentally inherently lesser than what he is. He is the one who is supremely worthy of our praise. So we talk up that awesome movie that we just watched. We gush about the new cleaning product we just bought. We rave about our sporting team. We tell others about you know, all these whiz-bang features in our new car. Why would we do less for God? In his hands, in his hand, singular, are the depths of the earth. Now think about that. I realize it's only imagery and it's not literally true, but think about what it's saying, that in his hand, in a singular hand, God holds the very depths of the earth. Now, you know I'm not a great gardener, but I do dabble. And so if I'm digging in the dirt, you know, grabbing some potting mix to, to put in whatever, how much do I hold in my hand? Jackal, really? Like, you know, diddly squat. Hardly anything is held in my one single hand. But God holds the depths in his hand. And in the opposite direction, the mountain peaks belong to him. He holds and owns the depths to the heights and everything in between. The sea in all of its vastness is his, for he made it. This is our God. If you learn to pray... You know, following an acronym like, like ACTS, you know, A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication, or, or anything similar to that. This is why they always start with praising and adoring God, because He's inherently worthy of it. And it then rightly orients us to the one that we're relating to. It reminds us that, that God is more than we can think or imagine, so we lay down our, our limited and inadequate ideas about him by remembering and praising and adoring him for who he really is. This is why we sing and make music and shout aloud, because, because our God is wonderfully, gloriously awesome. And I understand then that the, the thing of, of turning up to church and not, not really feeling like singing, for whatever has gone in your life or in your morning, it's, it's one of the last things that, that you really want to feel like doing. I get that. But how we feel and the experiences of our lives don't change who our God is. And our singing then reminds that of that, of that. And if we can't sing, then our neighbor next to us who is expressing and declaring that praise reminds us of that. So come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, the psalmist says. It then moves on, and there's a second call to worship. And, and this call then gives us a, a new reason. We're, we're called to come and sing because of who our God is, King above all, Creator, Sustainer. And then another invitation to come. Let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. 
as having considered the greatness of God, we're now called to worship him because this God, this great, glorious, you know, over everything God, he's our God. He's not just someone else's or just out there being, but he's, he's our personal God and we are his people. Despite all that has already been said of him, this great king above all gods does not remain distant and aloof, but rather he enters into relationship with us, making us the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. The more literal translation is that we are the sheep of his hand. So the same hand that holds all the earth has us safe and securely in it as well. As he created and sustains the earth, so he does to us, his people, his sheep. And as a shepherd of his flock, he acts with us and for us to guide us, provide for us and and protect us. And then this is why we would worship him. Because he has entered into a relationship with us as unwarranted and as undeserving as we may be. If you started at the beginning of Psalms this week, you'll have read this. When, when I look at your heavens, the, the work of your fingers, when I look at the, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the answer that the psalmist gives is that we are the sheep of his hand. We are the people of his pasture. We are the flock under his care. This same God who creates the moon and the stars enters into and delights to be in relationship with little old me. Hallelujah. Someone's got the whole shouting thing uh, you know, going on. When we consider that the God of the universe took on flesh in the person of Jesus and died on a cross to bear our sin and by so doing reconcile us to himself and to give us eternal life with him. When we, when we think about that, when we realize that, of course we're going to worship. What other response is appropriate? The God who is so far beyond us became one of us to save us. And the more we grasp this, then of course... Of course, there's little else we could do but to bow down in humility and awe and wonder before him. And again, we see in this psalm that our worship is embodied. Just as we raise our voices before him, here it calls us to kneel and to bow down before him. And this is where I found this passage you know, personally challenging because when I'm in the congregation, my hands usually pretty, pretty comfortably in my pockets. But, but what I express with my body says something about my worship. The, the same commentator we looked at earlier says this, We are bodies and not merely spirits. And what we do with our bodies expresses our, our real selves. So the call for us is to worship God, to, to relate to God with our whole selves, not just with our inner spirit or with our heart. Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, yes to all those things, and with all your strength, which is your your body, your physicality. Or, Or Paul tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, as part of our our true and living worship. And so to live that out requires an embodied physical response. 
And I know some of you do this really well. Some of you are just free to lift your hands in praise or to dance, or even I've seen people kneel as these verses call us to. And to you, I want to say, keep going and may your example and may your freedom encourage the rest of us, myself most definitely included, to let our bodies also express our worship. This is not about becoming a happy, clappy Pentecostal or anything of that, like, which I know can be some, yeah, some of us more conservative, traditional kind of people. That can be some of our fear, but it's not. It's just being biblical. We heard about what it means to be a Baptist, that the Word is the basis of our life and our practice. And so here it is, church, to all of us, to let our bodies express our worship. But it's then at this point that the psalm takes a sudden turn. And it's a turn that, I mean, it's dramatically different in tone, but it makes sense in the flow of the psalm. Because if we're going to recognize God as the great king, who's creator and sustainer of all things, and if we're then going to claim him as, as our God and to be in relationship with him, then that has implications for us. Let's read it from the second half of verse 7. It says, Today, if only you would hear his voice, his voice that says, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. And they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, They shall never enter my rest. The implication is, if we're going to claim relationship with God, then we need to listen to Him and respond to Him in faith and obedience in and through all things. Because if we don't, we're actually demonstrating that we don't really know God and we miss out on the intimacy with Him that He has for us. So the psalmist in his part goes back into Israel's story where God had miraculously saved them from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. Um, but then twice, they complained that God had brought them... Well, they complained more than twice. It's a pretty constant theme in their story. But specifically, they complained twice that God had brought them out into the wilderness to die because, well, there's no water for us. So they had seen God send plague after plague after plague on Egypt. They had seen him part the Red Sea for them to walk through and then have it swallow up the pursuing army. They had seen him as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead them on their way. They had eaten the bread that he provided each morning and the meat that he provided each night. They had heard him thunder from the mountain. They had experienced 40 years of walking and wandering and their shoes and their clothes never wore out. There was no blisters. There was no wearing out. There was no you know, having to get a new thing. They had seen and experienced all this. And then they expressed disbelief in him and in his ability to provide water for them. Rather than continue to trust what they knew of God and of what they had experienced of God, they tested and tried and doubted God, though they had seen what I did. And here's the indictment against this. God speaks and he says, they've not known my ways. So the issue is not about 
living to a moral code. Not a, it's not that they didn't live up to the Ten Commandments or anything that, that God gave us. It's not, it's not about that they didn't live up to a moral code, but the issue is that they misunderstood God himself. They were not cultivating intimacy with him. They did not really know God as he had been revealing himself to them. And so they did not know his character or his ways. And so as a result, they doubted. And in their doubt, they rebelled. And they missed out on the rest and on the promised land that God had offered to them. So we are warned then to not be like these Israelites. Regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we need to keep our hearts both, both soft towards and aligned with God, the, the one who holds the depths of the earth and us, his sheep, in his hand. And we do this. We stay soft towards him and aligned with him because we know him, because we know his actions and his character towards us. It's like in those spy movies or, or spy novels when, when the, the hero character goes, goes undercover. And they're, they're deep you know, in enemy territory or they're deep in the, in the gang life or, or, or whatever it is. And they're, they're in this enemy group and they're just fitting in that context. And so then their supervisors or, or their friends you know, start, to, start to doubt them, thinking that they've gone native, that they've crossed over to the other side and that, you know, that what they had held on to, that they've put you know, their, their, their justice and all that kind of stuff, they've put that aside because... They're now behaving like this. But then there's always still that one friend, isn't there, who, who still believes in them, who still trusts them, who, who knows them. And so who knows that regardless of how things seem in the moment, they continue to believe in them. And of course, then they end up right, and the, the hero does the right thing, and, and the day is saved. God says then that regardless of how things look, if we really know him, then we will keep trusting in him and in his goodness, knowing that he will come through for us. Because he is, after all, our good shepherd. Psalm 13, that you may have read today, like I did, expresses this. It begins by saying, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? To apply it to Israel's experience, it starts in the wilderness where there's no water and they're thirsty and they're in need. But where then they harden their hearts against God? The psalmist, the psalm ends with these words. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The psalmist ends here. Because he knows God's ways. He does know what God has been like. And so even though his, his current experience is one of feeling forgotten and, and neglected, he, he continues to, to trust despite the current trial. And as such, as he continues to trust, he experiences God's goodness and steadfast love, these things that he has known about God. And so what about you and what about us? If we would hear his voice, we are to keep trusting in what we know of him, in what he has done in the past, so we can continue to believe in him and walk with him in the present. And that's then why we come together 
with music to, and, and extol God with music and song. Because as we do so, we rehearse his character, his great actions in salvation, and we declare our praise and our trust. And this then leads us into the word. Like, you know, our, our, our basic service structure, we spend our time singing these songs of praise and adoration to God, and then we come to his word. Because we've reminded ourselves of who he is and of what he's like, and then we open his word to, that we would hear his voice, that he would speak to us, his people. And then we have an openness to respond in faith and in obedience because we know who it is that we're listening to. And we know the good that he has for us. So as we come together then seeking intimacy with God, we come to him in worship, bringing out our full selves in all the physicality and all the emotional range of that. And we come remembering who he is, that he is the great sovereign God above all, the creator and the sustainer of all things. And we remember then who we are in relationship to him, that we are his sheep in his hand, that he cares for and guides and provides for as we see supremely in our salvation through Jesus. And so being rightly oriented towards him, knowing who he is and who we are in relation to him, we then come to listen to his voice in his word, and to not just to listen, but to then be um, faithful doers, to, to walk in obedience, in faithful obedience to him, because we know who he is. And so then we receive his goodness and his fullness towards us. So what a great God that we get to know, and that the psalm invites and calls us to worship. Let's pray, and then we will put into action as we sing again. So let's pray. God, your word calls us to come to you with singing and with song and with music, to, to come with shouts, to come with praise and thanksgiving, to come with joy. And we do so because we're reminded of who you are and that you are just so worthy of that. You are the great God, the God above all things, and yet, for all your glory and majesty and, you know, vast awesomeness, you draw near to us. You bend down, you become one of us, you, you invite us into relationship with you, and you care for us like the sheep in your hand. And we're just awed and humbled. And so we've spent this time then listening to your word and what it has to say to us, listening to your voice through your word. And I pray then that we are not, you know, stubborn, hard-hearted, rebellious, distrusting, doubtful people like your people of Israel, but that like the psalmist in Psalm 13, that even though in our current experience we may, we may wonder where you are, Yet we know who you are. We've seen you act. We know what your character is like. And so we continue to walk in, in faith and in trust and in closeness to you, even in the hard time, knowing your steadfast love towards us, knowing your goodness, knowing your fullness that you'll give to us. And so having heard your word then, God, 
we get to then put it into practice right up now. And so as we sing these last couple of songs, may, may we raise our voices. May we lift our hands. May we kneel our, our, our legs. May we do whatever physically as well as, you know, in our hearts that you are moving within us to do so, that you would be lifted up as the one who is just so worthy. May we worship you together as your people now, we pray it. In Jesus' glorious name, amen.